It really is sweet to trust in Jesus. It's not always easy. It's not always simple. We always have good reason to. Jesus is always perfectly trustworthy. Um, we're not always perfectly trusting. And, and believing in something that we don't see has its special challenges. Special challenges that come with a special blessing. Uh, a special blessing from Jesus himself who says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's where Jesus has chosen to put his people right now. Uh, that's where Jesus chose to put Luke's friend Theophilus. And Luke writes to his friend Theophilus in order to help him to know the reliability of the things that he's been taught. He needs that. He, he's, as we saw last week, uh, if, if, if he's a believer, it looks like he has a genuine interest in Christ, perhaps a, a real believing interest. Uh, Theophilus, uh, believers at the time at which Luke writes, are not part of an established social group. They're, they're not a group that has a lot of natural influence, really very little, if any, Jesus tells them, Jesus tells those people in Luke, right before he is, uh, right before he ascends, in Luke 24, 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's no small deal. That's a big deal. That's a global deal. That's a life or death deal for me and for the world. And Jesus says, I'm giving this to you to do. And those in the Christian community at the time when Luke writes might be understood if they ask the question, how can I know this? How can I know that, that we are going to be the ones to extend this offer from God in the name of Jesus um, on the terms of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name? How can I know that? How can I know that I can have that or that we can have that or that we can give that? One of the reasons that assurance of God's promises is needed for us is that God often takes longer to fulfill his promises than we think should be necessary. And when my time frame runs out, I have a tendency to think that the promises have probably expired. But when God makes a promise, whether he promises to reverse one old couple's infertility or whether he promises to save a whole nation, the assurance is always the same. My words will be fulfilled in their time. So in this passage, you have those, those two phrases meet each other. How can I know this? And my words will be fulfilled in their time. We find it in the story of uh, Zechariah, uh, a priest that we'll meet in Luke 1, verses 5 through 25. 
and in Zechariah's role as a priest, as a mediator for the whole nation. And God has a promise for each of them. As we follow the, as we follow the passage, as we follow the story, I'm not going to read it all at once. We'll read it in pieces as I go along. What we're going to see happen is we're going to start on the outside with an individual situation. And then that individual situation is going to connect to the whole community. And then the whole community and the individual, both of those concerns are going to come together and be met in the temple uh, by God through the agency of an angel. So you have individual situation, community situation, both of them together being met by God in the temple. And then you come, you zoom back out to the individual situation, or to the community situation, rather, and then back to the individual situation. God is concerned for both. And we're going to find that God's promise to the individual to restore life is going to be very closely connected to God's promise to the nation to restore life. So we start with the individual situation in verses 5 through 7. God has been making and fulfilling impossible promises on his own timing for years. It's a pattern that's established over centuries. And when Luke writes in verses 5 through 7, he really sounds like those centuries. He's describing a situation that really is still taking place in what we could call the Old Testament, uh, under the Old Covenant. And so the, the, the way that he describes this sounds a lot like Old Testament language. Starting in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. The, the details are not exactly the same, but the words and ideas sound a lot like the first two verses of First Samuel. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, gives his lineage. And then in verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And then back to Luke 1, verse 7, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Barren is a hard word. That's not a word that, that sounds polite to our ears. And in some ways, it's not meant to be polite. It's meant to describe the genuine feeling of what it's like to long for children and not be able to have them. It describes what the experience feels like and and. It also describes to some degree uh, how people with this struggle were treated. They experienced something that Elizabeth herself is going to call reproach. It's this message that they get from other people around them, maybe even without words, that says, there's something wrong with you, and maybe it's your fault. Or at the very least... If that thing isn't wrong with me and it is wrong with you, then it probably at least means that I'm better than you and more deserving than you. 
That's uh, how Elizabeth felt, and Zechariah with her. And that's how Israel felt at its time. It, it, was, it was in a time of, of what we could call barrenness. It was in a time of trouble, a time when it was being oppressed by another great nation. They felt barren, and that's exactly where both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth and the nation, needed to be in order to be ready to receive what God was about to do for them. This kind of introduction, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. If, if, if we've got familiar, some familiarity with the patterns of the Old Testament, then we begin to know what to expect when we hear God say, but Elizabeth was barren. When that's said in the Old Testament, that piles up expectation for us that God is about to reverse it. He's about to do something about it. You have Sarah in the Old Testament, Rebecca and Rachel. You have the mother of Samson. You have the mother of Samuel, uh, Hannah. And regularly... That provision of a child for longing parents is part of a much greater provision for the whole nation. It's amazing for the one family, but God is regularly, when he reverses what's called barrenness here, he's doing it not only for an individual family, but for the nation as well. And that's, it turns out, what God is doing here. So the setting then from verses 5 to 7 expands in verses 8 to 10, where we see God's people outside the temple. We find them expecting still after years and expressing that expecting by waiting and by asking. God's people are outside the temple. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense in the place where God had made himself accessible. One way that God had made himself accessible, God had set up the terms for how this was going to happen for his people under the old covenant. There was going to be this place where there was a, a holy of holies and there was going to be an altar and there were going to be a variety of ways for God's people to come to him in the way that he had prescribed for them in a way that they could experience his presence and be accepted by him. And one of the ways that he had done that was by commanding that incense be burned on the altar of incense twice a day. So a priest would do that in the morning, and he'd do that in the evening, right outside of the Holy of Holies. Now, for the nation, this had been done twice daily for years. Then we find in verse 9 that Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, it's worth doing the math on this just a little bit to see what a, what, what a big deal this was for Zechariah. Zechariah was one of about 18,000 priests during his day. You just do the math on this, and you got 18,000 priests, and you have uh, burning of incense happening about 700 times a year. You divide those things, and you realize that your chances of being chosen to do this happen about one, once in every 25 years. So for Zechariah, this really is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. At least in this context, this is the closest to the Holy of Holies that he will ever get. So it's a big deal. 
and for the moment, he has no idea how big a deal it is. And even when nobody has any idea what to expect today, God's people are still expecting. They're still asking. They're praying outside. You can imagine what they would be praying. No doubt, something like, deliver us. Deliver us from our oppressors. And for some people, at least, the more important prayer, deliver us from our sin. This, this passage and, and where we find God's people here praying probably the same things over and over again, twice daily, helps us to remember when, when you keep asking for what God has promised, remember to keep expecting as well. When you're asking for what God has promised, remember to keep expecting. He times his surprises perfectly. You see that happen inside the temple in verses 11 to 20. As it all zooms together. God knows that he is about to answer. He is about to reverse barrenness. Now, one of the other patterns that we see when God does this is, is that when he's about to do this, sometimes what he does is he sends a messenger to let people know about it. When you see that messenger, you know that you'd better pay attention. And people know that. It catches people, people's attention to the extent that they are regularly struck with fear. It, it always turns out that the point is not to scare them. The point is not to make them feel like they're just about to be crushed. Even though there is intentionality to the fear. The point is that this messenger, this angel, brings seriously good news that we seriously need. It, it's so serious and so good that the, one of the jobs of the messenger is consistently to tell the person that he's speaking to, do not be afraid. Now, I, I could crush you, but that's not what I'm here for. I, I'm here to bring you good news. And that's what he's doing for Zechariah. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, verse 13, for your prayer has been heard. Which, if Zechariah had a minute to think about it, he, he may ask, well, which one? Which prayer? Uh, what, 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 are, what are you bringing an announcement about? What, what's being answered here? And as the angel goes on, we hear that really there are two prayers that are being answered. One old one, and one very, very old one. The old one, the angel mentions first in verse 13. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. A longing on their part to have a son. Maybe a longing that hadn't even been expressed in prayer for years. Maybe they decided to lay this aside and said, you know what, for whatever reason, this this is not something the Lord is going to do for us. And the angel says, he is. At a time when you feel it to be impossible, you shall bear, your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And then he goes on to describe God's promised answer that's coming now to the very, very old prayer. 
you will have joy and gladness, verse 14, and many will rejoice at his birth. So the answer to Zechariah's personal longing is connected directly to the longing of the nation that probably is being expressed outside by them, right outside the temple, as he's inside. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Verse 15, because he will be great before the Lord. He will be set apart, and he'll be empowered for God's delivering purposes for his people. Verse 15, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. These are descriptions of deliverers and prophets sent by God to his people in an Old Testament context. It's been a long time since anybody like this has shown up, and here he is. This child will be great because he will speak for the Lord. And he's going to speak for the Lord in a way that will bring renewal to God's people. That's in verses 16 and the beginning of verse 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. We could spend a long time talking about what kinds of renewal this may refer to. But at, at the very least, God is saying through the angel to Zechariah that he, he's not only going to let you have a family. He's going to start making families what they're supposed to be. Because he's going to start making people what they're supposed to be. Restoration to God will restore people to each other as well. And this child is going to be a part of it. The renewal that he brings is not going to be the ultimate renewal. It's going to be a preparing renewal. He's setting the stage for someone else. He will, verse 17, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's, he's a forerunner. He's somebody who's coming as an indication that somebody better is going to be coming. Somebody infinitely better. You may have noticed in verse 17, it says, he will go before him. He, John, will go before him, which is whom? We actually see in the end of verse 16, 17 is where we see he will go before him, and the him we find from the end of verse 16, the Lord their God. Which means the Lord is coming. We read from the very beginning of 1 Samuel earlier and saw echoes of that story in the story here. And there are more echoes as well. Because when Hannah's prayer for a child was answered, the child that she received was dedicated to the Lord, and it turned out that he was a prophet, and he was a prophet who introduced God's king, which is exactly what's happening here. There are many echoes here. There are certainly echoes, explicit echoes of Elijah as well. We're told that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
He's going to come like Elijah did, and he's going to have even greater effect than Elijah had. Elijah was faithful to preach God's word, and Elijah himself was discouraged by the lack of impact that he saw on God's people. This prophet, this this man will be a prophet, and in Jesus' own words, he will be more than a prophet. These provisions, these fulfillments, are things that God's people have been encouraged to long for for centuries. Even in these words here in Luke 1, we hear, we hear previous prophets echoed. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then, in the last two verses of Malachi, uh, the last of the latter prophets, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, Zechariah has joined the centuries of faithful among Israel in waiting for God to fulfill these promises, trusting Him to fulfill these promises, asking Him for the restoration of His people. And here it's announced, it's coming, it's, it's here. And Zechariah knew that God would do that in principle. He trusted God. He really did trust Him for it though we could say that he trusted him from a distance. And now the fulfillment of those promises is brought uncomfortably near to Zechariah. The first answer that Zechariah is given has been proven by years of experience to be impossible. The first prayer that's been answered is that he's going to have a son. And then the angel that's speaking to him connects that promise to the promises to the nation so that he raises the stakes of Zechariah's response considerably. He says, the, the answer to your prayer for a child is not only personal. And your response to it cannot only be a private matter. Elizabeth must deliver a son before God delivers the nation. Sometimes when you're part of God's plan of salvation, which if you're a Christian, you are. You're a part of receiving it yourself, and you're also a part of spreading it to others. Sometimes in the process of being a part of that, he calls you to trust Him for something that can't have a backup plan. So often we, we have backup plans, don't we, for how we can get these things to work. Maybe even in, in a ministry role, we sort of have our ways of knowing that, uh, well, there are a few different ways that we could see this working out. We could see this being successful. That's happened for centuries. God makes a promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you a son and he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I've got this figured out. I've got a backup plan. 
And God says, no. No, this is going to be a situation in which either God is going to provide for you or it's game over. And that's the situation for Zechariah. And we can sort of hear him saying, wait a minute, I, I'm stuck here. So you're saying that the fulfillment of these great promises to your nation depends on my having a son? How's that, how's that possible? I, I've felt that to be impossible for years, and we hear that expressed in verse 18. How shall I know this? Now, to be fair, he's not the first person to ask that. Abraham and Genesis 15.8 asks a very similar question. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And at the same time, even though we might see other faithful ask this kind of question, we could see ourselves asking this kind of question. It really is inconsistent. Here you are burning incense. Here you are taking God up on his offer to approach him on behalf of the people showing by the very fact that you're burning incense that you are trusting God to make good on his promise to favor his people. You're trusting him in general for his promises. You know that that's impossible apart from God's gracious intervention. And yet, when it comes to what really is a much smaller promise, much smaller scale, your personal limitations make you stumble. And we all experience that, don't we? We speak confidently. We even sing confidently about God's commitment to work all things for our good, to present us before himself blameless and with great joy. We can speak of all kinds of God's promises that he extends to his people, and we speak about them confidently. And then... Uh, we get a diagnosis or criticism or we get cut off in traffic and all of a sudden that same question gets raised up to the top of our consciousness. How shall I know this? How can you work all things for my good in this situation? And while we can sympathize, we really should never justify. It's, never, it's not justified for Zechariah here. Uh, fact. He's even given a boost for faith. We often are as well if we have eyes to see it. Zechariah is given a boost. Um, it's not, there, there's not usually when, when a priest, even in a once-in-a-lifetime situation, comes before the altar of incense, it's, it's very, very uncommon for there to be someone else standing there, especially someone like this. And you, you don't even need an introduction to this person who's standing here unexpected to know that they bring serious and reliable good news. You can tell just by looking at them. And yet, for the sake of emphasis, I think, Zechariah gets an introduction. How shall I know this? Well, in fact, Zechariah, you do have good reason to know it. And the angel introduces himself. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. This is an angel that's introduced in Daniel as a bearer of particularly important messages to God's beloved servants. And God, with both gracious 
distinctness and with clarity uh, rebukes Zechariah through the angel. And, and he essentially says, you don't believe my words. So you're going to be unable to use yours for a while until exactly the right time, which is the way that the Lord works. I am Gabriel. He says, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Not yours. They don't expire when yours expires. They will be fulfilled in their time. My words for you, which feel very old based on your experience, and my words for the nation, which you already know are centuries old and are now being fulfilled. And this is not going to be allowed, Zechariah, to be something that's treated as personal and private, something for you only to store up in your heart and to ponder it's time for you to face the nation because you can't stay in the temple. Uh, it's taking a little too long already, and the people are wondering. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. It's made immediately public that God is doing something, that he has sent some message to Zechariah. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. <clears throat> when, when God gives a promise to Zechariah, and then he connects that promise to a much greater promise in, in scope and in need, he doesn't set aside the more personal promise. And we, we now zoom in a sense, back out to this outer circle of the personal situation. And Zechariah goes home, and we find that John, this promised son, prepares the way for the Lord even before he's born. This whole business of his parents conceiving really is, uh, in natural terms, impossible. Under any other circumstances, if you ask the question, how, how can I know this? How can I know that I'm going to have a child? Well, except for God's gracious intervention, the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth would be, well, you can't. You can't know. And you really don't have any reason to expect it. But God has intervened. And he is working here. And so there is a very clear indication that the promises that God has connected together, the individual promises to Zechariah and the greater promises to the nation are being fulfilled in their time. <clears throat> when, when you ask the Lord to deliver you, to deliver you from your oppressors or to deliver you from your sin, and you can still see a way that you can deliver yourself, you have a backup plan, that feels more comfortable, doesn't it? Sometimes the Lord allows us to, to see those kinds of things. He allows us to see a variety of different ways in which something might work out, even ways that we can help to promote. But when you're told at an impossible time of life that you're going to have a son, 
and that your son's birth will prepare the way for God to save his people, there's really no way to hang on to a more comfortable path. There's no, there's, there's, there's no sort of, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I have another way that feels more comfortable to me. All you can do is trust. And if the Lord doesn't show up, then you're sunk. And yet when the Lord does show up, you see him in greater ways than you normally do. And you not only see him, but you allow other people to see him as well. Trusting Christ will sometimes require decisions or commitments that just can't have a backup plan. Where you don't know how you're going to make this work. Where you need Him to take care of you or you're lost. Some of you have experienced these kinds of things and reported about them um, on mission trips. Where you've gone into a literally foreign situation, certainly foreign to you, and you find yourself saying, here we go, Lord. I'm stepping into this situation and I couldn't figure out how to make this work if I wanted to. You say, I, I am completely dependent on you. I cannot imagine a backup plan. And you step out in unseeing faith and you have seen him provide. You've seen him do things you could not even have imagined him doing for you and through you to others. When, when God puts you in those kinds of situations, as uncomfortable as they are, and He forces you to do them to some degree in public around other people, He's usually working on something much bigger than you. He's working in you, He's working for you, and He's working through you. Just like He does for Zechariah, through Zechariah for the nation. And he's always faithful. His words will be fulfilled in their time. His words to us as his people, where we might ask, how can these things be, especially when the application comes uncomfortably near and we're forced to do this purely by faith. The words that Jesus gave to his disciples before he went to the right hand of the Father. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Great. In general. But it's not just general. It's personal. You are witnesses of these things. And God will provide for it. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's done that for us. You may have an opportunity to have one of those blind faith moments this week. If you do, it might feel like there's something that's gone really wrong. It hasn't. This is your opportunity to see the Lord in ways you haven't before and to make Him seen. Father, we thank You that You have given us a picture of Your pattern with Your people. That when we find ourselves feeling really uncomfortable, we're in good company. And we're provided for well. That you have clothed us with power from on high. Not our own power. We feel our own weakness. But we see your power working through it. So help us to be willing, as you set us in those situations, to make you known, even when we can't 
figure out exactly how. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.